0: Amen. Well, good morning, City Light. Yeah, great to be with you, 11 o'clockers. My name is Doug. I enjoy getting to follow Jesus with you guys. And as we launch into a new year, we are also launching a new series of sermons looking at an ancient 3,000-year-old book of the Bible, Ruth. And in its most basic form, I mean, Ruth is a story. And we all love stories. We watch stories. We read stories. We listen to stories. We tell stories. And I have to wonder, you know, like, what is your favorite kind of story? The happy ones, the sad ones, rags to riches, or travel and adventure, romance, comedy, I'm a sucker for a great comedy story, right? I just love funny stories. In fact, some of my favorite memories growing up were sitting around the dinner table and dad telling us stories about like his crazy coworkers and the funny things that they would do at their job. And then my older brother, he would chime in and he was always trying to like one up my dad's stories. And he clearly embellished his stories But we didn't care. We loved it. You know, we wanted to listen, we wanted to laugh, and enjoy these funny stories from my dad and my brother. We all love stories, and we're shaped by stories. And Ruth is a story, all right? I'll actually introduce Ruth to you in this way Ruth is a story about love. That leads to Jesus, all right? Ruth is a story, which means it feels more like sitting around the family table on a holiday and your uncle or your grandma telling that story yet again that's been passed down through the family over and over again. It's more like that than it's like sitting in a classroom and the teacher's just throwing facts at you, you know? It's a story, and it's got characters, There's Naomi, she's like the sad and bitter one. There's Ruth, the courageous and beautiful one, and Boaz, this hardworking farmer. And then at the end, there's this cute baby boy born named Obed. And it has all these different elements of story in it there's tragedy. There's comedy, there's rags to riches, there's some romance between this old farmer and a beautiful widow, and there's uh, all different kinds of story packed into this. I mean, it is a masterpiece of storytelling, even though it's only four short chapters. Ruth is a story about love. And this might disappoint like some of you longtime Christians. I don't know what you've heard taught about Ruth, but like I don't think it's a love story. You know, th- this isn't a Nicholas Sparks or um, Jane Austen book. It's not a love story, but it is a story about love. The love of faithful friends to one another, the love of loyal family members, the romantic love that sparks between the farmer and this widow, and the love between a mom and her children, between a believer and his God, between God and his own people. The overarching story of love in Ruth is that of a faithful covenant God who deeply and dearly loves his people in the tiniest of details in the most tragic of circumstances. Ruth is a story about love that leads us to Jesus. I think that after we've read the story and studied it and taken in every last word, we'll all agree that Ruth isn't the main character nor Naomi, nor Boaz. The main character is God, And God tells us this story to lead us to Jesus, to channel our mind's attention and to stir and direct our heart's attention to Jesus, to give us a longing and a desire for a rescuer, a Messiah, a Redeemer. And that Redeemer ultimately is Jesus Christ, even though he's not born until some 1,300 years after Ruth takes place, yet he's the main character the whole story. Leads us to. And you might be wondering, okay, cool. Why should I care? You know, like, how's this story going to impact me? It's a great question. And I really do believe that this ancient story about love that leads us to Jesus, it can have an impact in your life today. There's going to be times whenever you really wish you could be like Ruth. Other times you're going to feel like Naomi. Dude, you're probably going to aspire to be more like Boaz. Even though it's an ancient story, I think we're going to find ourselves in the story. There'll be times when you're longing for love. And not like a sappy, rom-com love, but a like faithful, covenant God kind of love. Other times we're going to be reading this and talking, and it's going to bring up these emotions of sadness and anger and bitterness, like Naomi, and you know you can't really walk away from God, but you might want to put on some gloves so that you could fight him. Other times we're just going to celebrate and rejoice, not like a fickle, flimsy version of happiness, but like deep down, true in your gut, Joy. I dare you to read through Ruth and find yourself in the story. Ruth is a story about love that leads to Jesus. On top of all that, if you're just simply not much of a reader, then Ruth is totally for you, okay? It's only 2,500 words, which is actually shorter than my sermon this morning, okay? So let's step into the story. Act one, scene one. And you might as well just know, it starts out sad. Like the first five minutes of the movie Up, it's sad. In fact, the title of my sermon this morning is Where is God when everything's gone? Ruth chapter one, verse one says, In the days when the judges ruled, okay? pause already, a little bit of context. The judges get their story told in the previous book of the Bible, right before Ruth, um, and that book of the Bible is called Judges. Creative. I know. I get it. Um, And they get their story told there. And what you need to know about the days when the judges ruled is it was bad. It was dark. It was sinful. Pretty much everybody did what everybody thought was right in their own eyes. And that pattern of sinful living led to this cycle where things went from like bad to worse to the worst. That's the days when the judges ruled. It says in the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land. So we're just a one verse in and all ready to strike two. Ugly times and empty land. Empty pantries, empty stomachs. There's a famine in the land. It continues and it goes from kind of like the big, broad picture of the land and it zooms in in one family. It says, a man of Bethlehem in Judah. Now, wait a second. Who else is from Bethlehem? Who else was born in Bethlehem? Jesus, right? So it's like the storytellers already winking at us saying, just so you know who the main character is, right? And it's not quite this guy, a man of Bethlehem and Judah. He went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. That name means my God is king, In the name of his wife, Naomi. Now you may want to circle, highlight, underline Naomi's name. She's going to be with us through the whole sermon series, the whole story. And Naomi's Naomi's name means pleasant. It's a sweet name. And the names of his two sons were Malon. His name means sick. And not like, that's sick, bro, but sickly. You know, like, it's a rough name. You don't want to go through junior high with this name. Um, and Killian. Killian's name means wasting away. What kind of parents give their kids these names? Hey, these are my two sons, sick and wasting away. You know, like, but that's, that's the story. That's what it is. They were Ephrathite's from Bethlehem and Judah. Two times the storyteller has already told us that these people are from Bethlehem. He's trying to give us the idea. They belong in Bethlehem, but they're not there now. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. It's tragic. There's already significant loss. These sons took Moabite wives. Now, is that an okay thing? Like, is that good? Probably not. In fact, no. Like, in the Bible story, it's clear that the Israelite guys aren't supposed to take Moabite women as their wives. And in the past, whenever an Israelite dude took a Moabite wife, it went really bad, okay? Like, it never went well. But they did. And the name of one of the wives was Orpah. And the name of the other, Ruth. Now, circle, highlight, underline her name, too. Ruth's name simply means friend, They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. That's as far as we're getting today. That's the start of the story, and what a terrible start, right? I mean, Naomi loses everything and everyone. Verse 5 describes her as left without, which essentially means she's like left behind. She's the leftover. She's left without. I remember as my grandma got older, she lived to be 91 years old. It seemed like for a season, um, it was like every week grandma told us a story about a funeral of a friend she went to and kind of that friend's life and all that sort of thing. And every week she'd tell us a story. But then after a little while, it seemed like the funerals got further and further apart. Until eventually, it's like there were no more funerals for grandma to go to. She had outlived her friends. She was left without her friends. Except thankfully, my grandma still had her son and his family and her grandsons and their families. But here, even Naomi, man, she's like left without those closest of family relationships. It's so powerful. I mean, if you could boil it down to just one word, she is empty. In fact, that's the word that Naomi uses later on in chapter 1, verse 21, when she herself says, the Lord has brought me back empty. She's got nothing left. She's got no one left to impact or influence or bond with or connect with. It reminds me of a few years ago when I read um, a Kristen Hannah novel. She's kind of popular, but uh, it was about this mother and daughter who were trying to survive in the wilds of Alaska. And the first 100 pages or so were sad, and I hated them. <laughs> And then the next hundred pages or so were even more sad, and I wish that I could just skip over them. And then the last few hundred pages were just devastating, and I just kept wanting to quit reading the novel, but I couldn't quit reading because even though it was so sad, it was also so compelling. I was brought into these characters' sadness, their loss, their grief, their emptiness, And I think Naomi is the same way here. Like the American in me, is just searching and scanning and hunting for the American dream in these verses. Like I just want to shout into the story, Naomi, find your dreams and live for them. You've got something inside you to give to the world. Like you're awesome. You be you. You do you, Naomi. But the storyteller doesn't do that. Like the God-inspired, Holy Spirit-directed storyteller just keeps giving us verse after verse after verse of the tragedy of Naomi's loss. And so I want to invite you this morning, though it is sad, to come with me. And let's just take note of all that Naomi is emptied of. First, Naomi is emptied of her home, right? She's pulled out of her homeland, Israel, taken away from her home region, that's Ephrathah. It was around Bethlehem, known for its rich vegetation, and she's pulled away from her very house, like this house that she and Elimelech would have labored to build and develop and furnish and make it their own. Naomi is emptied of her home. Last weekend, my wife 's sister uh, texted us in a rush, and she said, "Hey, please pray for us." She asked us for prayers because there were these crazy wildfires near her Boulder, Colorado home that were barreling towards their neighborhood at ridiculous speeds and so we 're praying we 're wondering what 's going to happen for hours that goes on until eventually they make the decision. They pack up with their kids and their dog and their chickens and found a hotel that would bring them in just so they could sleep and know They would be safe while these wildfires are coming at their house. The next morning they wake up and their house survived. But just six blocks north, entire neighborhoods of houses were burned down to the ground. Nothing left. Over 600 families emptied of their homes. Naomi gets it. Last summer, if you remember, thousands of Afghans fled for their lives out of Afghanistan because the Taliban was taking back over. They begged for the favor to get on a flight. They packed into airplanes and they left behind their nation, their region, their very homes. Like, Think about this, their beds, their kitchen tables, their groceries, their dishes, their toys, trinkets, photos, keepsakes, all of that. They left that behind, hopped on a plane, fled for safety and now they're arriving in cities around the world with literally nothing. Naomi gets it. Have you been left without your home? Maybe it was a divorce that left you empty. Maybe it was an accident that left you without. Or maybe a job loss that then drained the bank account and you weren't able to pay your mortgage or your rent. Naomi gets it. And with you, Naomi's asking, where's God when my house is gone? Naomi's emptied of her house, but Naomi is also emptied of her dignity. Did you catch in the story that she and her family, they end up going to Moab? No self-respecting Israelite would ever go to Moab, okay? Moab is this place that was like, it was literally conceived in like really nasty version of sin. And then it became a place, a hotbed for sin where they could just spread sin and live in sin. No self-respecting Israelite wanted to go to Moab. I mean, it is far worse. If you can just imagine, it is way worse than a Husker fan stuck in Kinnick Stadium while the Hawkeyes beat, pummel, and crush them yet again. It was a bad situation. Okay? It was so bad that even in Jesus' day, the Israelites would go out and around their way, adding days to their trip just to avoid Moab. They didn't talk with Moab, trade with Moab, or even acknowledge that they existed. Now here's Naomi having to live there. It's like she's lost her dignity. Have you lost your sense of dignity? Maybe it was there, but then, you know, the last time your spouse cheated on you, it was gone. You just lost it. Or maybe when the boss lied about you or the pastor talked about you in public or your friends slandered you online and it's like, man, my dignity got buried six feet under. Naomi gets it. And with you, she's asking the question, where's God when my dignity's gone? Naomi loses her home, she loses her dignity, and Naomi loses her husband. She's emptied of her husband. Even Elimelech dies. The love of her life is lost. Like, losing a house is one thing, and then even having to sleep in the enemy's backyard is another. But at least she had the one that her soul loves, But then he dies too. And with him, his death, she is emptied of that covenant relationship with intimacy, with affectionate touch, and words of assurance and arms that could hold her when she cried because her life is such a mess. And when Elimelech died, that would have also meant she was emptied of her provision. It was a patriarchal society. He would have been the breadwinner, the moneymaker for the family. It means she would have been emptied of her protection as well because he would have been like the family guard, the protector for her and the boys. She's emptied of her husband. Have you lost a spouse? I hesitate to ask because I know so many of you have. When I was writing this sermon earlier this week in Starbucks, I just paused for a little bit to take a break and went and talked with my pastor friend Um, John McCready, he's always in there too. And I just said, John, how are you, man? He just said, not well. John's wife passed away a few months ago, and this was his first Christmas without her. He said he was just stuck in his house. And then on New Year's Eve, he said he only spoke like five words, and it was his order at Starbucks. John said when his wife passed away, it's like someone reached through his back and took his backbone, took his heart, and emptied him of his greatest love. Naomi gets it. And with John and maybe with you too, she's asking the question, where's God when my spouse is gone? Where's God when I'm emptied of my greatest love on this earth? Not only that, Naomi also is emptied of her son's. Her boys die. I mean, these would have been the boys that she nursed, the boys that she rocked to sleep, the boys that she like loaded up and tried to travel to a foreign land to find food for the family. These would have been the teenagers that she had to tame and calm down when their hormones were going crazy. The young men that she wept over, the young men that she relied on after her husband passed away and now they're dead too. And with them, Naomi's emptied of her hope. She's emptied of her future. She's emptied of the ability to even dream of what might come next. Have you ever lost a child? It's just so wrong. Something's so wrong about losing a child. I've had to watch parents weep when their baby is still born. Watch parents weep when their toddler or grade schooler or youth passes away. Looking down on your child's grave marker, or maybe you climbed into that hospital bed just to be next to their body, while everything inside you was screaming, everything outside of you was screaming, and Naomi gets it. With you, she's screaming, Where's God when my child's gone? Where's God when my womb is still empty? Where's God when I miscarry? Where's God when that happens? By the end of this short section, just five verses, Naomi has lost her home, her dignity, the ones that she loves, her husband and sons, and by the end of it, she loses even her own name. She's emptied of her name. Verse 5 says, the woman, her name's not even given at the end. We all know who she is, but it simply says, the woman was left without her two sons. Again, no names given. And her husband, no name given these first five verses are tragic, but at least every time there's like personhood. There's a, there's a name attached to the tragedy, yet here at the end of verse 5, there's not even a name attached to her. She's just the woman who lost her husband, that guy, and those boys, those sons, So Naomi not only can ask the questions, where's God when my house is gone, when my dignity's gone, when my husband and my sons are gone, but she can truly and genuinely ask the question, where's God when I'm gone? Where's God when I'm emptied out? Where's God when everything's gone? It's a terrible question to ask and a tragically difficult question to answer. I mean, Maybe you've suffered like Naomi. Or maybe you feel like your suffering or your losses, they're smaller. You know, like I remember some losses in my life, like when I was a senior in high school and we lost our last soccer game to a rival and it was sad. I remember when I had to step away from a great paying job, like right around the time of the birth of our fourth child, And those were smaller losses, but I think some of us need to hear this. They were still losses, like real losses and real emptiness that you had and maybe even still have. And I remember when I went through those losses, I was like, God, where are you in this? It's a painful question to ask and a painful question to answer. And honestly, guys, the last thing I want to be is like the pastor who like, puts a band-aid on a gaping wound you know like I'd hate just to offer some cheesy bumper sticker theology or like motivational you know the cat poster just hang in there I don't want to be that guy and that's why I'm so thankful I'm just so thankful that Ruth is a story And in the story, it doesn't answer this question for us right away. It doesn't solve this emotional dilemma that we're all feeling right now. In fact, the story leaves these emotions of emptiness just sitting on Naomi while we keep reading, wishing that we could quit and close the book, but we can't because we're compelled. We're drawn in because we ask the same questions as Naomi. We ask, where is God when everything's gone? Where's God when I am empty? So here's what I need you to do. Could you put your finger on Ruth chapter one here and turn in your Bible over to Philippians chapter two. I, I want you to see this. See this word. If you've got your app, then open your app, all right? Don't just look at the screen for this moment. I want you to see it in the Bible. Philippians chapter two. You remember, Ruth is a story about love that leads us to Jesus. And Philippians 2 is going to help us see Jesus. Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. It reads like this. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to. But, here's our word. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself. Highlight, underline, circle, or just sit and stare at that word. Jesus emptied himself. Now in your minds and in your Bibles, go back to Ruth chapter 1, verse 21. Where Ruth says... I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi was emptied. Jesus chose to empty himself. Naomi was emptied of her home. Jesus emptied himself of his perfect home in heaven. Naomi was emptied of her dignity. Jesus emptied himself of his glory. Even moving into a land of sin, taking on our very own sin. Naomi was emptied of her husband, her love. Jesus emptied himself of his place and privilege is the darling of heaven. Naomi was emptied of her sons, and heaven was emptied of its son, the only begotten, very son of God. Naomi was emptied of her name. Jesus emptied himself of his name, taking on the form of a servant. No servant gets called by name. You're just called servant, slave, thing. And so Naomi grieves as she speaks. God has brought me back empty. But Jesus responds, I get it. I was emptied too. Now, what does that mean for us? I think it means that when we ask the honest and true and painful question, where's God when I'm empty? Where's God when everything's gone? There's actually an answer. And it might not be the answer that we want. I know it's not the answer that I want. Like, I want God to answer, Oh, it's okay, Doug. I'm over here in the greener pastures. I'll beam you over here. I want God to answer, You know what, Doug? Don't worry about that. I've got all the answers up here. I'll just download them to you really quick. But instead, God's reply, God's answer when I ask, Where are you when everything's gone? When my life is empty, Jesus replies, I get it. I was emptied too. In fact, I was emptied for you. And Jesus enters into our emptiness so that when our house is empty, Jesus is our home. And when our dignity is gone, Jesus is our worth. When our spouse is gone, Jesus is our covenant love, our covenant lover. When our children are gone, Jesus is our hope. When our name is gone, Jesus is our identity. When we truly ask the question, God, where are you when life is empty? The soft and subtle reply. Remember, it's more of a story than a fact sheet. So it's soft and subtle, but it is certainly sure. The reply from Jesus is, I get it. I was emptied too, and I will be with you in this emptiness. So here's how I want us to respond this morning. I want to invite you and me into a time of just praying and talking with Jesus, even in this place. So if you would, bow your head and close your eyes and let's pray. I know it feels heavy, and that's kind of not our normal around here. It's usually way more joyful and happy, but we're just sticking to the text. So even in this place of sadness or heaviness, chances are each of us in this room have found a way that we can connect with Naomi. We have some loss in our life, grief. We can tune into our own emptiness And can I just invite you in your own mind as you're praying and talking to God, could you tell him where you're empty? Tell him what you've lost. Chances are you've known it for a long time and thought about it for a long time. I'm just inviting you to tell it to God. And now, can I encourage you to invite him into that place of emptiness? Ask him to give you, like, some eyes, the ability to see that he's with you there and not just waiting on the other side for you to get it right, for you to get past it, for you to be okay and stop crying. He's with you there. Oh, Father, I ask that you would draw near to each person in this room that they might know your presence. That even as they sit in these chairs, their minds might be wandering to the loss of a child, the loss of a parent, the crushing of a marriage covenant that they thought would last forever, house or physical belongings that were taken from them, and as their mind wanders there, I ask that you would connect with them and you would open our eyes to see the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God something to be grasped but he emptied himself being born in the likeness of men and taking on the form of a servant and not even just that but lowering himself even to the point of death the death of a criminal on a cross. And so in this place, Jesus, we worship you. And our worship this morning sounds like a crying out for comfort. It sounds like a longing for your love. We worship you, Jesus, and we honor you by inviting you into this place of our heart. We confess our need for you here and we desire your presence now. Oh God, would you be our comforter? Would you be our friend? Would you work and move in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.